Most of us at one time or another try a sport, but only a tiny fraction become so good that we call them elite, the best of the best. Most get there through an incredible work ethic that starts as a child and usually dominates their young lives, often at the expense of their education and social lives. For most, the blood, sweat, and tears results in just a few years at the top of that mountain. What then? Have these elite athletes prepared for life after the glory? This podcast celebrates the lives of these elite athletes through conversation stories and a few laughs along the way. And now your hosts, Lucy Sang and Gary Stern. And we're back on After the Glory with another uh, episode with an elite athlete. And today we're going to talk about the business of baseball. This is Gary Stern along with my partner, Lucy Sang. Um, and uh, we want to welcome today Mr. Rick Reichardt. Rick was a elite athlete out of the state of Wisconsin, probably one of the greatest athletes to come out of Wisconsin back in the 1960s. Uh, but Rick became known throughout the world for being the last what was called bonus baby in all of baseball. Uh, and he'll tell the story which led directly to the baseball draft, which led eventually to free agency and a complete transformation in the game of baseball. Uh, I've met Rick through uh, the baseball fantasy camps. He is a marvelous human being. Rick Reichardt, welcome to After the Glory. I'm doing great today. How about you? We're doing fabulous. Lucy, take it well, away. Well, Rick, you know, we always get our podcast started with the classic question, and I'm going to rephrase it a little bit for you this time around. As an all-around athlete, what brought you to sports as a start and and when did you realize you were more than just the average athlete down the street? You were an elite athlete. Well, I still haven't realized that elite athlete <laughs> But as a nine-year-old, uh, they had a Little League uh, program that was initiated in my hometown of Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Fortunately, we were all coached by the college coaches. And the all-star team that I played on as a 10-year-old actually had five guys sign major league contracts so we were definitely led in the right direction even though we couldn't play but maybe two or three months of the year because of weather factors and so on when when you uh played what were your sports that you were uh, outstanding at by the time you got into a uh, high school well, i was basically in high school playing basketball track and football i did not play any high school baseball uh, as a freshman, I did not earn a letter in basketball. Um, the PTA was very upset about the fact that I wasn't going to get 12 letters. So he had me go out for the baseball team just sort of as an alert. And when I went to University of Wisconsin on a football scholarship, in those days, you could not play as a freshman. Uh, but after the freshman sort of spring game, when I would have been eligible to play as a sophomore that next year, I got hurt on the very, very last play uh, of uh, scrimmage. And a guy named Kurt Abraham from Milwaukee rolled up on my ankle. And three months later, my dad took out a piece of bone from my ankle. And next year after we were in the Rose Bowl for the national championship, I went to the coach. I said, Milt, would you mind if I went out for the baseball team? He said, do you have a history? I said, did you play in high Of course I did. But anyway... That's the only reason he let me go out contingent on my not only being a starter, but playing every 
day. And then our first games, of course, were in Arizona against teams that were much better than we were. And I was stinking it up. And a guy named Leroy Krajewski was put into my place. He did just as poorly. And the next game, I hit one over the center field palm trees at Arizona State. And the rest, as you say, is history to a certain extent. Well, well, Rick, you better explain to our listeners, otherwise they're going to wonder about your father and whether or not he was abusive of you. When you say he took something out of your ankle, why was he able to do that? Well, because he was an orthopedic surgeon of renown. He was also the team doctor uh, for the Green Bay Packers among you know the high school team and the college team in our hometown. So he really had a lot of experience doing that kind of thing. There you go. There you go. And what led you to, well, let's go back because you've sort of brought us right to that point in 1963-64. Um, tell us the story of becoming a, a sought-after baseball player and what happened that led to your signing. Well, you have to realize that I was sort of a naive 20, 21-year-old coming out of the University of Wisconsin, not really familiar with the process. Uh, but one of our assistant coaches at Wisconsin was a guy named Gene Calhoun, and he volunteered to be my agent, supposedly for free. Now, there's a lot of things, there's contracts that might have been a little better situation and so on and so forth. But uh, we basically made trips on our own expense to New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. In fact, our trip to Los Angeles uh, I really wanted to talk to the Dodgers, but Calhoun, for whatever reason, had me stay in Gene Autry's hotel, and the Dodgers definitely backed off on their negotiations. But at any rate, uh, after a period of time, some offers came in. In fact, I met individually with Gene Autry, his wife, his family, that kind of stuff, also with Charlie Finley. But Charlie Finley offered me much, much more money, and he did it over a long uh, several years of, uh, of play, which really would have made more sense had I known more about the tax situations at the time. But at any rate, we ended up signing with the Angels, and uh, I embraced that relationship. Had some nice relationships with all the players and stuff like that. I had a nice, nice thing going there for several years. Well, but tell us about the the battle for your services because it led to an offer. Uh, to sign where you don't go to the minor leagues because the the bonus babies receiving money over a certain amount were barred from playing in the minor leagues. Uh, tell us what that battle was and, and, and what happened that led to the end of that entire process for all the years since. I wasn't sure that we were not eligible to play in the minor leagues because after I signed a contract, I actually went to Davenport and played for my favorite manager of all time, Chuck Tanner. So I guess the thing that was really sort of involved was uh, how much money you're going to get, that kind of stuff. Uh, retrospectively, if I had it to do over again, I, I definitely would have put that money over several years because in those days, state of Wisconsin and so on, about half of my money went to taxes or the home that I built for my dad for $45,000, that kind of stuff. Plus, I gave my college coach $10,000, which in those days was a lot of money. So... Uh, that's sort of the, the, the nub of the, the financial part of things. We're going to talk about what happened after that first year of baseball and how that changed your life. Uh, for our listeners, uh, they simply need to know that there was so much money at that time paid to Rick Reichardt that in the year following, baseball instituted a draft 
to eliminate the um, bonus baby rule, which led directly to free agency some years later. And Rick was in the heart of it. When we come back, we'll talk about those years with Rick Reichardt. This is Gary Stern with my partner, Lucy Sang, on After the Glory. We'll be back. Hey, this is Lucy Sang from Resiliency Coaching. I am a certified mental performance coach focused on working with athletes transitioning into life after the glory days of sports. I help like-minded people become high performers and thrive in all areas of life. My goal is to serve as your accountability partner and offer different perspectives as you make tough decisions. Learn more about me on Instagram at resiliency underscore coaching, R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-S-E-E underscore coaching. And thanks for tuning in to After the Glory. University Credit Union has been providing a financial edge to members for over 70 years. Now you can earn more with University Credit Union. Earn up to 5% APY with a university checking account for the banking that you already do. You'll save more when you switch your deposits and loans to University Credit Union. Bank with your brain. Visit ucu.org to join today. Federally insured by NCUA. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back on After the Glory. This is Lucy Stang with my partner, Gary Stern, and our special guest, Rick Reithart. Rick in the world of sports today, free agency is a common term when it comes to signing players and completing contracts. What does free agency mean to you when you were a ball player? Well, being a farm boy from Stevens Point, Wisconsin, and approaching that situation as I did when I was 21 years old, I was very, very naive. And I think in those days, I was more interested probably in being with the right situation than the money involved because of taxes and that kind of stuff. And uh, so even though there was a lot of money out there, even though a couple more, maybe with somebody in some team that I felt very comfortable with. And being a Wisconsin boy, growing up with snow about eight months out of the year and having traveled to Los Angeles and meeting Gene and not only Gene's family, but his wife and his friends at their home was a major influence in my decision-making. After I signed as an aside, my dad was very upset with the fact that I signed with the Angels because he knew, bottom line, Finley and a couple others offered probably were better long-term. But I'm sort of one of these guys that likes people and likes to be around people that I like, and that was sort of a factor uh, overall in my decision to sign with the Angels. Uh, Rick, let's uh, share with our audience a little bit about that uh, uh, opening season with the Angels because uh, you were signed for over $200,000, and uh, that meant something in those days. Um, It meant that you were a player who could do it all. Uh, The the literature says that you're a five-tool player. You hit for average, hit for power, throwing, fielding, speed, um, and a lot of people compared you Today, that the Rick Reichardt of that rookie season was a lot like Mike Trout of the Angels. Um, you had a pretty decent year. You were a home run hitter. You hit the first home run ever in uh, in Anaheim Stadium. Uh, I'm curious uh, if you will share with the audience. You had everything going for you, and then something happened that changed your life. Tell us about that. Well, in that year, and I. 1966, another teammate of mine by the name of Jackie Warner was actually doing a little bit better than I was. 
And then uh, we took a trip to Chicago, and the guy that signed me, Nick Kamzik, said, Rick, it's wonderful how you two guys are going, but in a month, Jackie's going to be out of the league. What are you talking about? He says he can't hit anything above his waist. So I think he struck out like 16 times, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, it just wasn't going well for him. He was benched, and I'm in the clubhouse, and Jackie comes in all dressed in green. And I started singing, I've got a pretty good voice, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with your band of men, you know, dressed in green. And I'm getting dressed, and all of a sudden, somebody is pummeling me from the back. And Willie Smith was a teammate of mine in the locker right next to me, jumped on this. It was Jackie Warner. He was just so upset with what was going on uh, with his baseball and also the fact that I was sort of teasing him a bit that he went ballistic. Well, bottom line, uh, about two or three weeks later, I am at the Mayo Clinic having my kidney removed. Now, I'm not saying that was necessarily the precipitate to having lost my kidney because I think that might have been a residual of my playing football and that kind of stuff. But at that point in time, I think I had 16 home runs, 44 RBIs, hitting about 290, and the season was only about a third over. And uh, some of the revelations I got in the, in the dugout after hitting two home runs in one inning and balls 450 feet from Albie Pearson, some of these people made me feel pretty good about myself. But retrospectively, I've talked to people like Roland Heeman, who was with the Angels at the time, later general manager of the Orioles, very much involved with the White Sox. And he said there was really a precipitous loss in not only my ability, but more of my resiliency having lost that kidney. So I don't know how to really compare uh, before and after that kind of stuff, but there definitely was a drop-off, no question. Rick, if you don't mind, let's jump deeper in as you bring up a word that is very common in the world that I live in, resiliency. You, you were an elite athlete at the top of your game, and you had to go through a major medical procedure with the idea of coming back as an elite player in mind? Or was that even in mind for you? What was going on in your head when you were going through, you know, a, a major medical procedure? Well, as it turns out, uh, Dr. Henry DeWeird from the Mayo Clinic, my dad being a physician, knew the connection with Mayo Clinic being probably the best place to go. And uh, so we went there and he was the fellow to perform the surgery. And I can remember the angels were on a road trip in Minneapolis at a time, maybe a week or so after I had my kidney removed, and they came and visited me in the hospital, that kind of stuff. I had no doubt in my mind that I was going to come back, but I wasn't sure about the resiliency factor. I didn't think that was going to be a factor, but it was. And uh, I tried to work out as hard as I could in the offseason, thinking that might be the might be the case, but it really wasn't. I just didn't have the energy. You know, those days we're playing 190 games, uh, including spring training, that kind of stuff. And you would just sort of run out of gas. But there were fits and starts during most of my career where things were just pretty spectacular. And it's almost like those were periods of time when I just had a lot more energy, a lot more strength. You had some great moments in, in the years that followed, even despite the uh, the drop-off. Uh, you hit 116 home runs during your career. You drove in 445 runs a lifetime average of 261. There are bar players who are considered stars today who don't hit 261. I wonder if just from the standpoint of comparing ball players today to when you played, how has the game changed as you see it from the in terms of what goes on on the field? What's the biggest area of 
of difference that you see between the game today and when you play? Well, of course, we all know about the analytics and the shifts and starting extra inning games on second base, stuff like full-timers like me really aren't buying into this. Uh, but the other side of the coin is I think they're really trying to make a lot more money hitting home runs, that kind of stuff. And you see guys with two strikes not looking for the fastball, which Ted Wayne would absolutely manifest himself into. They'd be looking for breaking balls because they thought maybe that was a better opportunity for them to drive the ball, get home runs, that kind of stuff. And, so, and you know, Rick, uh, it's hard for me to fathom yeah. the kinds of stuff that are going on right now. Okay, you brought up Ted Williams, and uh, I'd, I'd like to visit that rather phenomenal experience uh, when we come back. We we had uh, Reggie Smith on a few uh, w- months ago, and he had that experience as well. So let's uh, touch on that, and then really touch on that transition in 1974 when the playing days were over. On After the Glory with Rick Reichardt, this is Gary Stern and Lucy Sang. We'll be back. Raise your game to a higher degree. Educating industry professionals since 1991, the University of San Francisco has established itself as one of the leading sport management master's programs in the world. Our locations in San Francisco and Orange County give students access to two of the largest sport markets. Earn a master's degree in 23 months from industry-leading faculty and join a community of over 2,500 alumni and students. Learn more and apply today at usfca.edu forward slash SM. Go Dons! This is Daryl Wayne here to talk to you about the co-creator and co-host of After the Glory, Woodland Hills lawyer Gary Stern. When Gary's not talking to elite athletes, you can usually find him doing what he's been doing for almost 45 years, navigating the world of government. As a college student and young professional, Gary helped folks deal with federal and state agencies through his work as a caseworker with a local congressman and state senator. That work prepared Gary for a career as a consumer lawyer. Today, Gary still helps people in all walks of life, but his passion nowadays is his service as a mediator, mostly in cases like the ones he's been handling for over four decades where people have been injured in accidents or in connection with their employment. You can learn more about Stern Law, the law offices of Gary N. Stern at his website, www.sternlaw.org, that's S-T-E-R-N. Or you can call him at 818-710-2717, that's 818-710-2717. Role models, they can make all the difference. In our world today, they have never been more important. One of the nation's most successful mentoring organizations is Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of Los Angeles. Their mission is to assist youth in achieving their full potential through innovative and impactful programs. And no nonprofit agency does it better. Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of LA serves Jewish children, boys and girls in our local community with a mentoring program that's been going strong since 1915. That's only the beginning. This nationally known agency owns and operates Camp Bob Waldorf. Its summer camping and weekend retreat programs enrich the lives of youth throughout greater Los Angeles. Then there's a college support program, and last but not least, work that helps kids all over the world through the Teen Talk app. Want to learn more? Go to jbbbsla.org. Donate. Get involved. There's no better way to make a difference. And we're back on After the Glory. This is Gary Stern with my partner Lucy Sang and our guest, Mr. Rick Reichart, uh, former California Angel, pioneer with when it comes to the uh, process by which we went to free agency in baseball. 
And Rick, that raises an important point. Um, some years after the time in which uh, you were the last bonus baby, um, you stayed involved uh, in the business side, um, standing up for your fellow baseball players. 1974 comes rolling around. Uh, I guess the name that comes to mind that I'd like you to talk a little about is Marvin Miller. What did he mean to the game? What did he mean to you? A little background situation here about my player involvement. Yes. In 1972, we realized there was a third clause, which basically stated that if you did not sign a contract and they, they kept you with the ball team, they'd have to pay 80% of your salary. In those days, the average salary is probably less than $30,000. And those of us uh, that were maybe at the upper end of our salary type situation felt that compromising, let's say, $20,000 on a $50,000 contract, and then the next year making you a free agent uh, might manifest itself in, in greater salaries. And so I had six guys from the Chicago White Sox not sign contracts, including myself. So that next year, I was playing for $40,000. And six of my fellow teammates were doing the same kind of thing. And I cannot tell you how mean Stu Holcomb, who was a general manager of the White Sox, was to me and to those players. It was beyond, beyond the pale, even to the point where I felt that sometimes they put me on the bench when I should have been playing regularly. Well, uh, the middle of the year got so bad. I'm talking about 1973 now, I think. And I basically... Uh, left the club. The last two games, I, I was hitting like 300, hit a bunch of home runs, that kind of stuff. And then that's when Charlie Finley and all these other people sort of jumped on the bandwagon, that kind of stuff. But I think the salaries went from a median of $30,000 to 250 And within five years, and exponentially, it's just gone crazy since then. And uh, there's Marvin Miller actually said to me that I was probably more responsible for the increase of salaries than anybody, even Kurt Flood. Andy and Mr. Smith and all those other kinds of guys because I had these guys on my team not signed contracts. And, uh, of course, it led to my release uh, by the Kansas City Royals by Cedric Tallis with tears in his eyes because he knew one of these guys that didn't shrink, didn't smoke, always behaved myself. And I, I thought I could have played another 10 years. Tell us about that. Either you're released in 1974. Is there any doubt in your mind that you're taking a stand for all the baseball players then and in the future is what led to your essentially being drummed out of the game uh, against your will. Is there any doubt? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that was uh, manifest in my leaving the game. The last, I had a very good spring training working hand in glove with Charlie Lau. I think I had two home runs the last spring training game. And then I remember batting practice uh, after the first game in 1974, I heard John Maryberry say, say something that I sort of overheard. I think Rick is getting released tonight. And after the game, actually, they put me in. I got a base hit. They pinch ran for me, which never happened. So I figured something was up. But I met with Jack McKeon and all the uh, man and all the other coaches in his, and they were all really upset about the whole situation. And they basically told me it was because of my stance as a player rep guy. And I can remember Charlie Lau coming up to me in the parking lot saying, oh, my God, Rick, what can we do about this? But even beyond that, uh, I coached uh, two years at the University of Florida. Both teams won the SEC. Both teams led the conference in hitting. 
I coached the one year at Santa Fe College. It's the only year they went to the College World Series, not just because of me, but the hitting was pretty, pretty scary. But even when I tried to apply for a job as a hitting instructor, even in the minor leagues, I got no response whatsoever. So obviously the word was out and nobody was going to touch me. We started the episode identifying you as an all-around athlete. Why don't you share with our listeners some of what you've been up to in the decades after your glory days of sports? Well, I guess the concentration of my life these days is on my family. I've got four kids, three girls and a boy, just named assistant principal up in Maryland at a huge high school. My son, Fritz, owns Landmark Mortgage. My other daughter, Heidi, is an optician. So I'm really, really, and of course, beyond that, uh, they've generated some more gene pool. There's like eight kids that are <laughs> eight kids of mine. So my life right now is pretty much because I'm not working anymore, uh, devoted to them and much we can do with their, with our families, that kind of stuff. So. In addition to all the coaching work you did at the uh, high school level, Rick, uh, I know you went into business after the after your playing days, and you became quite successful in the financial services industry. Uh, uh, how long did you work in the financial services, and was that something rewarding to you that, uh, that 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 gave you meaning to your life? Well, after I retired, I gave the thought about maybe going to medical school because that was my education. I had six years of pre-med at University of Wisconsin. I thought about becoming a psychiatrist, possibly. Uh, I thought about maybe being a podiatrist because the the tour of duty there wasn't so long to get a degree. But I had just enough money to not make that kind of commitment. And I became what they call a chartered life underwriter, which for all intents and purposes took me almost three or four years to get that degree. And I was a financial planner, selling insurance, disability income, long-term care, that kind of stuff. Uh, Everybody that I talked to, I sold. But I didn't talk to that many people. So I wasn't making a great deal of money, but just enough to sort of pay the bills and uh, make my wife and all my my kids happy at the time. So, But I've been on the shelf here for probably the last, I'm 78 now, the last 10 years or so. And I've also spent a lot of that time uh, sub-teaching at the local high schools, grade schools, that kind of stuff. And I've really gotten great satisfaction out of that. You know, identifying with the players, knowing when you go into that classroom, it's a girl that needs some help. There's a guy that needs some help. That is absolutely marvelous. And let me just say, as we wrap up this episode of After the Glory, uh, our season three has been focused on trailblazers, social and uh, community activists. And Rick Reichardt, definitely, you were a trailblazer, not just in terms of the ending of the bonus baby uh, system, but later on, taking a stand for your fellow players, it may have cost you some years of play, but you have had an incredible life and an incredible impact on the game, whether you think about that or, or not. Uh, we are proud and privileged to have had you as a guest today on After the Glory. Um, so thanks, Rick. Take care of yourself. Stay safe down in, uh, in Florida, and uh, uh, we really appreciate your time. This is After the Glory, and until next time, Stay safe and healthy, everybody. Lucy and I hope you enjoyed this edition of After the Glory. As we leave you until next time, we want to thank our team. Our producer, Mark Allen. Executive producer from Podclips, Mike Anderson. And our sound engineer and editor, the insane Daryl Wayne. We are also grateful for music by T. Dan Hofstede. And as we close out this episode of After the Glory, we honor our guest, 
with our theme song written and sung by my brother in baseball, T. Dan, the master of music from the islands and the slack key guitar. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and athletic. Living the dream on a shooting star. Hometown crowd cheering what you are. Living large and riding high. Razzling and dazzling across the sky. Back in the day, so young and strong. Work or play, you can do no wrong. But when that ride is through. your story, what you gonna do after the glory, step back and take him.